This is David Tarkington, lead pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. Thank you for downloading the sermon today. I encourage you to check out our website at firstfam.org. And if you get a chance, go to my blog, davidtarkington.com. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. We have been uh, through in this book since the beginning of the year. And today we find ourselves in a continuation of Paul's pastoral encouragement and challenge to the church. He began in chapter 4 saying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been given, speaking to Christians, and this follows up on that. So if you would, just follow along with me. You can read in the Bible in the pew rack before you on the screen, or if you have a copy of the Word with you, you're welcome to to join us in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. I don't know if you you caught that. If you didn't, I'm going to pause and let let you look at the screen and notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say at one time you were in darkness and now you are in light. It says you were darkness. By the embodiment of sin within us, by our nature, darkness is who we are, and that was our past identifier. But as Christians, as the church who has received Jesus Christ as Lord, you are not only in the light, as this says, you are the light in the world. In the Lord, the light of the Lord, in the world, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I am so encouraged by Paul's uh, words there because sometimes it's hard to discern. I don't know if you've noticed that. But Paul says try and keep trying and trust God in your discernment. Verse 11, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As we've talked over the last few weeks, especially since we entered into chapter 4 in this series, there is a pastoral tone, even a, almost a parental tone of Paul to the Christians in this church. This is the church, the letter to the church in Ephesus. These members of the church have, I don't know if you, you've caught this, if you need to, to understand this, they have done exactly what many of you in this room have done. They have become Christians, just ex- in the exact same way that, for instance, Lillian and Rebecca have done. They have become followers of Jesus Christ. For the way to become a Christian in the first century is the same way you become a Christian today. There has not been an upgrade to that. It is the same way. So these people in this church in an ancient city that had a different heart language, that lived in a different culture, 
claim to be children of God just as many of you in this room claim to be because of your relationship with Jesus of Christ, Jesus Christ. Because of who Christ is, you have that name upon you. These individuals in Ephesus had abandoned what, that which identified them as the lost, unsaved, unredeemed, unregenerate, simple creations of an almighty God. They have surrendered their lives individually and have received God's free gift of salvation, therefore gaining a name they had not known before. Prior to that moment, they were creations of God only. Now they are more than just a creation of God. Because of their surrender to Christ, they are now children of God, just as many of you are. With this gift that was given to them, a new focus had been revealed to them. And that focus as children of God was to glorify God. With this gift that was given to them, this new born-again experience, a new life had been given to them, eternal in God through Jesus Christ. So therefore, as we read the letter to the church in Ephesus, we must be reminded once more that this is a letter written by God through his prophet to his children. It's a letter to the church, not an evangelistic letter, not a letter to the lost world, not a letter to all those other people outside that need to start behaving, but a letter to those who claim the name of Christ to ensure that they live as those who claim the name of Christ. This is a message to the church. The church of yesterday that existed on an ancient side, uh, an ancient city on the other side of the planet. A church that as we look at who lived and who was members of that church in Ephesus, every member of that church at that time, in case you didn't know, they're dead now. We're reading a letter to a bunch of dead people written by a dead guy in an ancient world that they spoke a different language, they gathered in a different type of room, they sang different kind of songs, and yet it's the same God that we worship today. We come to him and worship through Christ, through the Spirit of God, in the very same way. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Last week I was having coffee with a fellow pastor in our city. It was just a good time to talk and to catch up. We were talking about theology and church life and and family. And 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 he's about my age, we're about the same age, and he's going back to seminary to earn his doctorate. And I was so relieved to be on the other side of that. That's why he wanted to talk. How's it like? What's it like? I said, it's terrible. It's the worst thing in the world. I was very encouraging. <laughs> Trying to help him out. But he's just starting. I said, it's a great journey. You'll love it. And, and he, we had some questions about that. And, and he was revealing to me some of what he is going to be writing his doctoral thesis on. And it was a concept that I had heard of but never thought in the way he presented it. And it spurred me to think of some things. And so I really started thinking about that as I'm looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and it really shifted the entire focus of the sermon today, believing that God orchestrated a coffee meeting with a fellow pastor to give me some insight for the congregation that gathers here. And so we're going to trust the Spirit of God in this and reveal that He is revealing to us that which we need to know. I was intrigued by this concept as my friend was talking about high places. I don't know how much you know about high places. I don't know how much you've studied about high places, but if you're on the journey as many of us are as a church family, reading through the Bible this year through the YouVersion app that we have the journey already planned out, then you know like today we started the book of Numbers. And as you get through those Old Testament books, you start seeing this categorical uh, uh, instance kind of come up over and over again, this idea of the high place. <clears throat> you don't get a lot of high place Bible teaching in, in many of the, of the books and studies today, but it is all throughout the Old Testament. And as I started thinking about the high places, I thought, wow, this is exactly what Ephesus is about at this point. Now let me make sure we're on the same page about high places. In the ancient world, what is a high place? A high place, brief definition, very brief here. It is um, something that appeared in many ancient cultures, especially all of the cultures 
and all the people groups that surrounded the ancient Israelites of the Old Testament. The high place was a place of worship. The high place, as you, 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 we've been, some of you, many of you have been to Israel with me on, on some of our trips, and we've been to some of these ancient cities. And what you discover in these ancient ruins and these ancient cities is that which perhaps you, maybe as I did, preconceived a high place to be is not exactly what they look like. I, I always thought growing up the high place must be that place on the top of the mountain, the highest place in the region where you would go to offer sacrifices and worship. And while that may be the case in some areas, most of the time the high place is a man-made elevated area. And it may not be on the mountain, it may be under a tree, and it's usually only about a foot and a foot and a half off the ground. So a high place is not something you have to necessarily trek to, but it is something you step upon. And it is a platform, it is an area normally man-made, a lot of rocks brought in to kind of give you a, almost like a stage, an area where worship could take place, the worship of idols and false gods. Now I know this is family Sunday, and how appropriate, as I know of all these parents, as I'm reading Ephesians 5, you're going, oh, this is going to be interesting. It's PG, folks, I'm going to keep it PG. We're good here, but you need to understand. Adults, listen between the lines with me. If you are an ancient culture and your god or goddess is the god or goddess of music, you worship the god or goddess of music by singing and playing instruments. This is just an illustration. You with me, moms and dads? If your god or goddess is a fertility god, you worship in a different manner. And I'm not going to be crude. I'm, I just want you to understand that everything that, that would fall under that, oh my goodness, is he saying what, he, what I think he's saying? I am saying exactly what you think I'm saying. In order to, quote unquote, worship a fertility god or goddess, things take place at the high place, which is ungodly and abhorrent and evil and should not be talked about in public. So I want you to understand that when idol worship is referenced in the Old Testament, it's not another denomination. It's not just a, well, they worship, a, a, we all worship the same God, call them a different name. That's not that mess. It is evil. It is deplorable. It, it, you know, you, it is everything that everybody in the culture goes, it's never been this bad before. Read the Old Testament. It has always been like this. That's the high place. That's what takes place on a high place. When God's people entered into the lands promised to them, they were instructed very clearly by God. Any parents in the room that have ever given clear, given clear instructions to their children? Anyone? Clear instructions. And yet discover that any, any child, you can be a 50-year-old child, it doesn't matter. As a child, you were given clear instructions, but you still didn't follow them. God's people are giving very clear instructions. So let me take you to Numbers chapter 33. <clears throat> Amazingly, we're connecting Numbers to Ephesians, but it is a great connection here. When God's people entered into the lands promised to them, they were instructed very clearly regarding what they were to do with the high places. No gray area here. God says this to, the, to his people in Numbers 33, beginning in verse 50. <clears throat> The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy 
all of their figured stones. Idols. Carved idols. Can't collect them. Can't put them in a museum. Can't sell them on eBay. Don't put them in, you know, don't put them as a decorative thing in your house. Destroy them. Then he goes on and says, destroy all their metal, metal images. Idols. Don't collect them. Don't put them in your house. Don't say, well, I just, I like to collect other world religions. No, you're not allowed. Get rid of them. Then he goes on and says, demolish all their high places. This helps us understand because if the high place is just climbing to the top of the mountain somewhere, well, then that, that's like a mountain. How do you demolish that? That's, see, the high places are man-made. Man-made elevated plateaus. Destroy them. So I don't know if you caught that, but God's pretty clear. Destroy them. He says if you don't deal with this correctly, and I, I won't read the rest of the passage necessarily, but it's all in there. He says the enemies of God, the idols and the idol worshipers, here's a great illustration, they will be like sticks stuck in your eyeballs. You ever hear that before? Good, that's what he's saying. He said if you don't destroy these, all of those idols, all the idol worshipers, all the false gods and goddesses, they're going to be like sticks stuck in your eyeballs. Now, I don't know if you've ever just stuck sticks in your eyeballs. But based on my, not personal research, but readings, it hurts. It causes great pain, and it makes it very difficult for you to see clearly. That's what God's saying. If you don't deal with this, the people of God, my people, our, your children, your grandchildren, your generation, be like sticks in your eyeballs, meaning this, you're going to have great pain and you will be, not be able to see truth clearly and your kids won't be able to discern truth clearly. And ultimately, it's going to result in the downfall of your nation. God warned his people what would happen if they chose to ignore him and live like the others. He said that in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 30. He said, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. It gets more and more graphic, but we're going to leave it there. Point made. Don't go to high places. They're bad. They're evil. They're dirty. They're abhorrent. They're an affront to God and to His people. They are not honorable. They are detestable. So there is no point at any juncture that the people of God did not know this. They knew this. They knew not to do this. They knew the rules. They knew what righteousness looked like. But as we saw in our documentary we viewed on Wednesday, by the way, probably the largest crowd in five years here on a Wednesday. I, I didn't know people still had Wednesdays on their calendars. So thanks for coming. It was amazing. But if you were here, you recognize in the clip where the pastor says this very clearly. He says, do you know why you keep going back to sin? You know why sin seems to control you? You know why it seems like you can't get out from under that sin? Very simply, no strings. It's you love your sin. And boy, do we. I don't really love it. Yes, we do. But I just can't help it. It's because you love it. We love sin. That's why we keep going back to it. That's the high place, the place of sin. That's what the Ephesians were literally doing in this regard. 
the people knew the truth. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we know it's a different era, a different time. We're talking about these high places in ancient cities that we go visit in Israel. Some of those ancient cities were ancient cities when Paul wrote this. And some of those ruins were actually ruins when Paul wrote this. So some of those high places were things that the generation of Ephesians would say, yeah, our forefathers had to deal with that, but you know, that's really not such a big deal for us. But there were still high places for false idol worship in the land, just not nearly as much. And some of it was categorized and, and, and cleaned up, and it was under the Greco-Roman world, and it was at Mount Olympus and all of that. So high places were still being used. Maybe not the way they were in their ancestors' day, but still being used. But whether they were being used that way or not, whether they were literal high places in Ephesus or not, here's what is very clear from Paul's letter There were still high places in the hearts of the Ephesians just as there are high places in the hearts of Orange Park and the First Baptist Church. This is where it gets really personal. There are high places in some of your lives that have not yet been abandoned. The text in Ephesians 4 centers on that first verse. It starts in chapter 4, verse 1, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And all of chapter 4 is a pastoral parental tone of you can do this, walk well, trust God, walk like a Christian, act like a Christian, live like a Christian, be a Christian, know who you are, your identity is bestowed, it's not something you choose, it's something God has given you. And in chapter 5 it turns and it says, I'm telling you, you, are, you have a walking problem. That's what he's saying, you have a walking problem. Boy, my voice, this, this uh, puberty is terrible. Um, woo, that and grape juice, that's what's killing me right now. I think I got that gluten-free cracker stuck in my throat. Um, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. Paul says, children, church, you have a walking problem. You're not walking correctly. You're becoming indistinguishable from those outside the church. And the testimony of our Lord is being marred. The identity of Christ of the Christian was becoming blurry. The Ephesians were struggling with this. Their self-portrait image had changed. It had become messed up. It was unclear who they were. Identity issues grew. You ever heard this phrase used against you or someone you know? Usually not a term of endearment. Sometimes they say something like, they being people that say this, I thought you were a Christian. I thought they were a Christian. Well, just so you know, that was not a recently invented phrase. The church in Ephesus is surrounded by a lot of people who do not follow Jesus, more people that don't than do. And yet Paul is saying, you're living in such a way, and this isn't a works theology, it's just there's, the fruit is not being shown here, that those in the city are building up this, well, we thought they were different, but they're really not. Why do I need that? They're no different than us. Today, their identity was, they had an identity crisis Why? Because they kept going back to their high places. Not necessarily a physical idol worship, but here's the thing about idol worship, just in case you didn't know this. If it's a fertility god or if it's whatever god or goddess they've made up, every worship of every idol is ultimately about self. That's what it's about. It's about pleasure, my pleasure. It's about um, my money. It's about my, my riches. It's about my blessings. It's about my being happy. Idol worship is self-worship just played out for the public. And, and, and if there isn't a literal high place for you to go and worship to an idol, what we tend to do is create them in our hearts and slide back there. 
The identity issues are, are being faced then or being faced now. Now here's what happens. Let me see where we are on time. Okay. Quickly. There are things that are, there are lies that are being believed. And the people of Ephesus were believing these lies, and sometimes the people in Orange Park may be believing these lies. So be careful. Here are the lies. One, the lie that we're smart enough. Every generation tends to think they're more enlightened than the, enlightened than the previous. Especially if you go back a few, those, those ancient, our ancient ancestors, oh, well, you know, they were silly, they didn't understand. It's amazing the older you get and the more you study and the more you read, the wiser they become. The enlightened individual will say, well, I'm smart enough. I won't deal with that. It's not his issue. Our forefathers dealt with that, but we don't have to deal with that. We're much smarter than they were. But if you read the Old Testament biographies, you'll notice uh, when you get to the, the kings of Israel, you'll find very few good ones. Like David was considered a good king, a godly king, a man after God's own heart. Now, he had his issues. I mean, if you want to call murder and adultery issues, he had sins grievous sins yet still man after god's own heart why because he was not identified by his sin but by his repentance and he repented but there are numerous kings that followed him and apparently even though they were smarter and more enlightened they were dumber because they did not follow god some see sin like that especially you know just it's not that big a deal when, when sin is not a big deal, you're already falling down that very slippery slope. So we're smart enough, first lie. We're strong enough. Isn't this the argument of every addict of every kind? If I can quit if I want to. But apparently they don't want to. Because the, ad, the addiction, the sin of the past, or whatever it might be, seems to overwhelm them at times. Now I spoke last week, so make sure you remember this. The sins of your past... Do not define you, nor do they own you. However, Christians, they can come back to trap you. The message we hear is, well, it's in the past. It's not an issue. I'm strong enough not to have to deal with that anymore. Paul gives a list of actions and attitudes that illustrate just the opposite in chapter 5. So here's something to hold on to. Apparently, just believing really hard with a lot of sincerity that you're strong enough to not be tempted in the ways that you used to be tempted before you became a Christian is not enough to keep you from falling into that temptation. You're not strong enough, apparently. The Israelites were told to avoid the high places. When they did not avoid the high places, destruction came. When they ignored the commands of God, they realized they weren't strong enough. Now here's something interesting about high places. Not only were they to destroy the high places where the idol worship took place, they were also to destroy the roadway to the high place. Now here's an illustration representing somebody that doesn't go to our church, never was a member, so don't try to figure out who it is. It was many, many years ago, but I had a little meeting with an individual who uh, is married. And yet... Um, his spouse found out he had uh, a friend on the side. You follow? PG? But the man was so traumatized she found out she did not, he did not want to lose his marriage. So a little counseling, a little recommendation to go see someone, and I talked to him, and here's what I told him. I said, does that other person have your cell phone number? Yes. I said, you need to change your cell phone number. 
I mean, that, that, that's like trying to take a cell phone away from a 12-year-old. Do you realize how hard that is? Well, all my contacts are in there. All my, my business is all in there. I was pretty blunt. I said, you might be a nice single man in there too. Change your cell phone number and don't give the other person the contact information. And that's not enough, but that's a start. Now listen, there's a whole lot of smart people out there who go, well, that's just ridiculous. I don't need to do that. That's not that big a deal. That's as crazy as that, you know, that, that Billy Graham rule that he had. He wouldn't ride in a car with a woman that wasn't his wife and all that stuff. Listen, the other woman was the high place. He, he was hers. It was mutual. Destroy the relationship if you want to keep the one that God has ordained. But I've known her for many, many years. She's a friend from high school, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? I, I, your wife cares. You can't just say, we won't talk anymore. You know why? Because you will. You know why you know this? Because every human being's done this. That has fallen into that trap. Unless the road is destroyed, you will go right back down it eventually. Destroy the pathway to the high place so that you don't find yourself worshiping the idol once more. And in that case, the idol was himself. That's just an illustration. It could be anything else. And so for the person in the room today struggling with a secret sin, and I don't need to know what it is, you know what it is, and God knows what it is. And that secret sin is overwhelming you. And I'm just going to tell you right now, just saying, I can get through this is not enough. Just deleting files is not enough. Just clearing your history online is not enough. Just changing jobs is not enough. You have to go further than that and remove the pathway to the high place or you will find yourself tempted to go back over and over and over and over and wonder why today is no different than yesterday. You know what? I'm strong enough, a great lie. Thirdly, I'm sufficient enough. That's a lie. I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm sufficient enough. Here's the sufficiency lie. It sounds like this. You can do it. You have what it takes. You can be anything you want to be. While all of those messages ring loudly in our ears, understand this very clearly. And this is a shift for some of you guys that have been with me and through a lot of men's ministries. Let me just make sure you understand what I'm saying here. You don't have what it takes, regardless of what your daddy told you. And you are not in a place where you can be what you want to be by speaking it into existence. You're not God. I don't have what it takes by myself. And neither do you. Apart from the power of God, apart from the grace of God, apart from the strength of God, none of us have what it takes. If you have what it takes, you don't need Jesus. The seduction power of sin never wanes, even for the Christian. So let's talk about Solomon. What do you guys know about Solomon? What do you know about Solomon? Bible guy. Wise. He's a wise guy. He asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. He's the son of David. Wouldn't you love to be the son of God's man after his own heart? That's Solomon. He's one of his sons. He becomes the king. He's, a, he's got wisdom. He asked for this. He was a righteous king to a degree. He had the privilege of being able to Get, have the honor of building God's temple. 
David wasn't allowed, but God allowed Solomon to do so. But here's what happened when he got, became an old man. See, sometimes just growing older doesn't mean you're growing wiser. Sometimes it just means you got older. And some people get older and don't get wiser because they've retired from spiritual growth and they actually get dumber. So the wisest guy on the planet ever became very stupid very quickly. Because look what happened. His attitude towards sin became casual. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. Okay, Sirach, Sirach, whatever. The wisest man of all became stupid at times. Here's something, I don't know if you knew about this, but Solomon loved women. He collected a lot of things, and apparently wives and concubines were on the list too. Now, I get that many of those wives were political treaty wives. I get that. But at no point is multiple wives or multiple husbands God-affirmed or ordained by him. It was not God's desire. And Solomon wasn't just... Still a pretty good king compared to many others. And a godly man, as said, in many cases. But at this point, in his, in his, as he grew older, he became complacent. His complacency with the things of God. Oh, let me just, let me just read this to you. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here's what happens. Chapter 11, verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. You never heard of Ashtoreth? Ashtoreth is the female fertility goddess that's partnered with Baal. I've already told you how you worship fertility gods. So he already is there with the, the, the ancient maypole worship scene around the Ashtoreth pole. Dancing around. Never mind. Then it says he went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, another false god. So Solomon, verse 6, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. Okay, it's bad enough that he's gone. He, he's allowing his wives and his family to have all these multiple religious practices in the home, because you don't want to have peace. I know we're all different religions. No, 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 no. Solomon, man of God, God's people, God's nation, has these multiple wives that are worshiping gods and goddesses that are made up. And they're all worshiping him, and he's, and he's kind of joining in. But it gets even worse in verse 7 because not only does he join in, he builds a high place. He builds a high place to worship Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, have you ever heard of Molech? Molech is like one of the most heinous worship experiences of the ancient world it is the old testament abortion clinic that's what molech is babies are born and offered as sacrifices solomon is worshiping molech the abomination of the ammonites on the mountain east of jerusalem that way he could have a good view of the temple and he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. That's not the Solomon story I remember from Vacation Bible School. But it gives us an indication of why, after Solomon dies, the nation is now split, and there are more evil kings than good kings that follow in the lineage, and the people of God 
It's kind of like they have sticks in their eyeballs and they can't see very clearly. And the pain is great. It didn't end well. Paul's words of warnings of, uh, is a word of warning and a word of love for the glory of God and the good of the people because the people in Ephesus have forgotten who they are. They are walking wrongly. They are seeping back into their own ways. They have gone back to their own high places of their youth through their nostalgia, through their looking back, through their old friends, through their past lives, the lives that do not own them nor define them. They're allowing them to and trap them. And that's what Paul is writing. He says, you are child, children of God, but you're abandoning your identity to go back to your emotional, spiritual, heartfelt comfort zones of your high places of idol worship. And God is abandoned. And it seems almost so tragic until you realize our grace-giving, loving God does not leave them on their own. God provides a voice, and the voice is Paul's, a voice that calls them back, a voice from a previous, from a guy that used to hate Christians and tried to kill them, is the one that's sitting in a prison cell saying, Beloved children, you are not what you're acting like. The Holy Spirit is calling through Paul's words, and it's the same voice some of you today are hearing calling. God is saying to some in the room today, your high places, you don't mean to go back, but you went back and you keep going back because you didn't destroy the pathway there. You have not cut off your history and that keeps you from moving forward in your faith. I mean, looking back's okay, but don't live back there. And don't go back there to worship at the high places that owned you prior. Block the road back. And let's move forward.